Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. 1 Samuel chapter 17. While you're getting there, let me give a little bit of a setup of what we're talking about today. We're going to see something that God does for David, that God provides for David, something that, humanly speaking at least, David wouldn't have made it. It is at a moment where David is at a low point of his life. He's being threatened by an increasingly unstable king named Saul. And during this season, God does something for David to preserve him, to help him not only physically but also psychologically and emotionally to endure in a season where he is otherwise alone and abandoned. God provides David with something that would easily to overlook or even dismissed. It's not flashy. It's not like when God parts open the Red Sea, that where we see in parts of the scripture, that there's no doubt that God is at work there. This is a lot more subtle. But God does something for David that is absolutely critical for David to make it in this season of his life. God gives David a friend. Right when he needs it, God gives David a friend. It's a friend named Jonathan, and a friend without whom David would have not been able to get through this season. And Proverbs 18.24 summarizes for us what we'll be talking about today. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There have been studies since going all the way back to 1980s that have linked a lack of friends or loneliness leads to health risks. Now, these studies have shown not having friends have similarly detrimental to your physical health as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day or not exercising. Friendship is central and it is critical. And the reason why it is critical to our lives is because we are made in the image of God. God, who is eternally existent as God, yet three persons. Now, I understand that kind of blows our mind a little bit, but the main point I want to focus in on is God exists himself in relationship. Friendship is the very essence of who God is. Before there was a universe, there was a God who eternally existed in relationship with himself. And God created us, humanity, in his image. When Genesis recounts how this happens, God puts man in the garden in paradise. God is communing, relating perfectly to this man. And the way I imagine it's like it's almost like I imagine Adam sitting, you know, on a lawn chair, just kicking his legs up with a tasty drink. You know, if you if you're very East Tennessean, he, I imagine he's holding uh, say Miller Lite. <laughs> if you're you know more of a snobby, he's holding a mojito. If you're very Southern Baptist, he's holding Hawaiian punch. So there's Adam in paradise, in communion with God, holding a tasty drink. And God looks at him and says, it's not enough. This is outside of my creative design for humanity. He needs to be in relationship. I've designed him to be in relationship with others. 
So that's what we're going to go in on today. And at first, I would just like to encourage you that if you have a sense, a deep sense of need for friendship in your life, that is a good thing. I would even say that if you find yourself lonely at times, desiring deep, meaningful relationship, that's not necessarily a sign that there's something wrong with you. It could be just that you're just made in the image of God. Now, you could be alone because there is something wrong with you, but desiring <laughs> deep, meaningful friendship, possibly that you are, in fact, made in the image of God. So that's what we're going to zoom in on today on aspects of David's friendship with Jonathan. So the snapshot of David's life at this point, that he's been anointed as a future king of Israel, but he goes back to the pasture where he came from, and he waits on God to elevate him. And David's rise to fame comes a few years later when Israel is stuck in a battle with a, na uh, stuck in a battle with nation and people group called the Philistines. And the Philistines sent out their best warrior, a man named Goliath. Many of you have heard the story, and Goliath is going to represent the Philistines in the one-on-one -on -one combat that each nation sends their best fighter, winner takes all, and Goliath is taunting the people of God. And David shows up to bring food to his older brothers. He's not part of the military. He brings food to his older brothers and sees that everyone is scared of Goliath, and David is confused. He says, I don't understand why is everyone afraid of him. Just go take him out. He is taunting the people of God, and that means he's also, by nature, he's against God himself. Just go take him out. And everyone stands back. No one is willing to step up. Not David's older brothers, not King Saul, who we just found out last week was chosen to be king in part of because of his size and combatability. No one steps up. Not Brad Pitt from Troy. No one is standing up to fight Goliath. So David steps up and does it himself, but he kills Goliath, and quickly David becomes a national hero. And we'll pick up the story in chapter 17, verse 56. The king said, find out whose son this man, young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before the king, with David still holding the Philistine's head. How's that for introduction? I will shake your hand, but I got a head right here. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. And David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. This idea of being one in the spirit is actually used elsewhere in the scriptures. In Genesis chapter 44, describes Jacob's relationship with his son. This idea of being one, being tied, being, your life is bound to another. And that's what's happening here with Jonathan. Jonathan sees something about David through this whole Goliath ordeal. Jonathan knows that literally anybody should have stepped up to fight Goliath. But David is the, one that, the only one that stood up. You got the whole army, you got the king, you got Jonathan himself who's the prince. But, but David, but he saw what's happening here and he recognizes the work of God in David's life in this very moment. That he saw the spirit of God is upon David, and Jonathan says, I'm with this guy. And that is the beginning of their friendship. Verse 2. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. So Saul actually sees something special with David as well, but we're going to find out later that he doesn't quite see the whole picture. 
And after all of this, after all this introduction, Jonathan made a covenant with David. So let's chat about it real quick because there's about 3,000 years of cultural difference here. So when the Bible says a covenant, we need to make sure we understand what it's saying because that's something we necessarily have a language for for our day. So here's the concept. Back when people need to make a commitment that is binding, they will take an animal, they will kill it, they will cut it in half and put the halves on each side, and they will walk between the animals. And as they step through, what they're essentially saying to one another is this. If I don't keep my end of the promises, then what happened to this animal will happen to me. So they're literally saying to one another, I'm committed to you, and if I take that back, you may kill me just as this animal has been killed. That is a strong commitment that comes at a great cost. Let's keep reading in verse 4. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along his tunic, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. So here's another thing that's symbolic that can get lost in translation. Jonathan is heir to the throne. He's the prince. He is Simba from the Lion King. He's Saul's son, and, and Jonathan takes a symbol of his royalty, his robe, his armor, his bow, his sword, his belt, and he lays it down in front of David. The clothes, everything that symbolizes Jonathan as royalty, he, he puts it before David, and he lays it down before David. What he's doing here, he's saying is, what, I, I'm giving you what is supposed to be mine, as long as it's up to me to give. And it's not entirely up to Jonathan here, but what he's saying is, as far as it's up to me, the throne is yours. You're the, going to be the next king. I'm giving up my right to it. I mean, this is completely crazy talk. No son of a king is going to say, I sense and see what God is doing in your life. I'm going to step aside my right to the throne and give it to you. I'm going to hand you over and allow you to step in because I think you're the man that God wants to be king. So Jonathan is committed to David. He sees that God is doing something with David and he's willing to sacrifice himself to promote God's purposes in David's life. He's willing to sacrifice himself to promote God's purposes in David's life. And later in 1 Samuel 18, it says David's fame continued to grow among the people of God. That people in the streets were singing songs like, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul heard the song on the radio and began to realize, I'm going to lose my power. Because as we even talked about last week, a big part of Saul becoming king was chosen because of his size and his combatability, his very means to protect the nation of Israel, and his, the very thing that qualifies him is beginning to fade away, and Saul's starting to realize that. It's beginning to dawn on Saul that all of this is going to be taken away from him. That what David is up to and what God is doing in David's life is starting to make sense in Paul's mind, and this is where it begins things to turn dark and go bad for David. And we see this in the next chapter, in chapter 19. Saul, at one point, actually tried to kill David with a spear while David's playing music for him. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David and he's no longer with Saul himself. So Saul becomes deathly jealous of David and begins to plot to kill him from then on. And from this point forward, Paul, I mean, Saul's going to come up with some very overt schemes to kill David and some really not so 
over more subtle. But this one's pretty obvious. When you throw a spear at somebody, then they tend to pick up on what you're trying to do. And this right here begins this back and forth between David and Saul that would eventually involve Jonathan as well. And the story moves forward where Jonathan attempts to be a mediator between his father and his friend David. He steps in for his friend and tries to advocate on David's behalf. He tries to convince his, his father that David is an honorable guy. He's just trying to do the right thing. He's not against you, Dad. And Saul tells Jonathan that he will leave David alone, but he secretly continues the plot to kill him. And eventually, this whole thing comes to a head, and Jonathan realizes that his father is still trying to kill David. And Saul realizes that Jonathan knows what he's up to, and Jonathan is actively still trying to protect David. All of this explodes in the later chapter, in chapter 20. So flip to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20, we'll pick up in verse 30. Chapter 20 and verse 30. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Okay, potty mouth. <laughs> NIV actually kind of cleans up the language a little bit, but you don't have to be a Hebrew scholar to know what Saul's saying here. And Saul continues to... Uh, to say in chapter 20 that you picked our enemy. You picked our enemy over our own family, and as long as David is alive, your kingdom can never come. Jonathan, if you want to be king one day, you have to kill David. And Saul is so frustrated. Why would you partner with this person who's trying to overthrow our kingdom? That's why Saul's popping off. He was outraged. He cannot believe that Jonathan will forfeit his right as the son of the king. He can't believe that Jonathan will trade his own kingdom to align with David. Saul then throws a spear at Jonathan in this argument. Now, how did Saul come after David earlier? A spear. Jonathan is so identified with David that the threat, the danger, the obstacle in David's life now becomes his own. Jonathan gets treated by his father the way that his father treated David. So David's trouble are now Jonathan's trouble, quite literally. It was a very tragic moment for Jonathan because the full cost of his allegiance and loyalty to David, his friend, has come to the surface. Because of his loyalty to David and God's purpose in David's life is now costing Jonathan his relationship with his dad. And the story continues on with Saul trying to kill David, and Jonathan sends a secret to David to warn him. And we pick up the story where Jonathan meets um, with David after receiving the secret message in 1 Samuel 20, verse 41. After the boy had gone, David had got up from the south side of the stone and bowed before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground, then to kiss each other and wept together, but David wept the most because David knows all that is costing Jonathan to be his friend. Bowing in the ancient Near East is about reverence. For someone to bow three times is the highest superlative of reverence. David, this is David humbling himself before Jonathan. Just imagine if your best friend has stuck with you and it comes to a point where you realize that it is costing them everything everything they had cherished to be your friend. This is what's happening right here. This is what we're seeing right here for David to realize that. And look at how Jonathan responds in the next verse. 
Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to the town. So Jonathan says, hey, no matter what position my dad takes towards you, God is between us, and that is not changing. Jonathan calls David to trust in God's promises. So David leaves, and David spent another portion of his life running and hiding from Saul. And we'll fast forward to the very last interaction that David has with his friend Jonathan. This is another time where David is in trouble. It's in, verse, it's in chapter 23, verse 15. Chapter 23, verse 15, we'll skip forward again. While David was at Horish in, de- in the desert of Zeph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life, and Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and Jonathan went home, but David remained in Horish. So Jonathan goes out to encourage David and reminds him of God's promises. He says, look, I know it doesn't look, at, look, look like it right now, but God's going to do what he promised. Can you keep your head and hold on to God's promise? And this was the last interaction in Scripture between David and Jonathan. From the very beginning of David's troubles, started all the way back to all the way here to the very end, Jonathan steps in, he encourages David, strengthens him, and gets him out of trouble. He goes between Saul and David as a sort of mediator and tries to navigate their relationship. It is really a beautiful narrative picture of what a gift of a friend can be. And in part, at least humanly speaking, is why David is able to make it through this season of his life. And I just read over parts of it to kind of give you guys an, an overall narrative arc be, between David and Jonathan. There's actually a lot of details we had to skip over because of time, and I would encourage you guys to read through them. But I was just so struck by all of this this week as I was studying and trying to clarify what I want to tell you guys. There's just something, something so beautiful when we see friendships depicted like this, friendships that are so com- absolutely committed to one another. There's just something incredibly moving about it. So think about all the, like, the famous friendship you see in movies or shows like Woody and Buzz from Toy Story. You got a friend in me. Some of you didn't tear up when that song came on. Kenan and Kel, Dory and Marlon, Frodo and Sam, for my nerds in here, Timon and Pumbaa, Will and Carlton, Forrest Gump and Benjamin Buford Bubba Blue. (laughs) There's just something that grips us when we see a beautiful picture of friendship and when we see people committed to one another. For the long haul, no matter no matter what, having each other's back through the highs and lows of life, there's something beautiful about it and something in our hearts ache for those friendships. We just connect to it. And I was listening to a sermon recently, a pastor said, because we have such a mobile society today, people come and go at a pace that outpaces our ability to forge friendships. He's saying people come and go so quickly that it doesn't allow us time to really build meaningful and deep relationship. And he goes on to say, so our hearts do not have all the friends that they need. So our hearts do not have all the friends that they need. And when I was listening to him saying that, and there's something part of me going like, I don't have all the friends my heart needs. 
part of being a pastor is I don't know who my friends actually are. Did the people in my life see me as a pastor or did they see me as Jeff, one of their friends? Are the people in my life only in my life because I am useful to them? Or are they in my life because they care about me? And when people leave our church, the relationships are gone and I don't know if I can count on them. So a lot of times I feel like I'm alone. And in fact, this week, Barna Group released a study that 43% of pastors are contemplating on stepping down from ministry because they feel alone. And I just got to this point that I was hosting this pity party for myself in my office, listening to this guy talking about, I don't have all the friends that my heart needs. And you know what's crazy? I actually have some fantastic friends. Some of them I actually planted this church with. Some people I've been walking together for 15 years. In fact, the reason that I'm able even to be with you guys this morning is because one of the guys in my life group is watching my son who is sick. So I can be here with you guys. I have fantastic friends. From the staff and the pastors to the people in my life group, I have great friends. But there's just something about this topic that makes it so incredibly easy to throw a pity party for yourself. Not to mention, some of us genuinely don't have all the friends that our hearts need. So just think about this sermon. I want to figure out what I want to say to you guys. And just the fact that many of us know that as you get older, when you start, even if you have, have kids or whatever, friendships become even more complicated. I heard a guy once said that one of the most neglected miracles of Jesus' ministry is that he has 12 close friends in his 30s. <laughs> I often wonder why people say the best times in their lives were in high school and college and there are probably a lot of factors here, but I think a significant part that is for many, that is the only time in their lives the need of friendship is actually met. That we move from this environment where we see the same people every day to completely isolated adult lives where we don't even know the names of our neighbors. So here's what I don't want to happen today. I, I, I'm actually disinterested in you weaponizing this sermon and heading to the life group this week and you walk in and point your finger at everybody in your life group and go, you're not good enough friend to me. You're no Jonathan and you're no Jonathan. <laughs> and for nothing else, because if you go in like that, they will rightly turn it back on you and say, and you're no David. <laughs> so here's what I like to do. A last, maybe about 15 or so minutes, instead of pointing our fingers at other people, of how they probably are not as good as friends as we need them to be, which I'm not even taking it away from you, honestly. They might not be good enough friends to you. But what I would like to instead do is something a little bit more hopeful and definitely more helpful. I would love for us to think about whether or not we are always the kinds of friends that other people need us to be. Because that's something we can control. We cannot control how other people treat us, but we can control how we treat them. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you five observations that we can glean from David and Jonathan's friendship. And we're going to use these five observations to do a little bit of self-evaluation and examination to see how we can grow and be good friends to others. I know there are tons more than just five from David and Jonathan's friendship because it's loaded. Unfortunately, I don't have time to, cap, to kind of cover it all in one morning, so we're just going to barely scratch the surface. So here's the first one. 
Friendships require a foundation. Friendships require a foundation. Best friendships come from it's more than just friendships. One of the things the writer Samuel wants it to stand out is that David and Jonathan are both committed to what God is doing in the world. That's their common ground. That's what their friendship is built around. In some respect, this text is actually saying something more about discipleship, not just friendship. It's about what it looks like to follow God and align ourselves with his purposes over and above everything else. If you remember, what initially draws Jonathan to David is the work of God that he sees in David's life. And that's what Jonathan emphasizes over and over and over again with David. It's, a, it's that da- reminding David that God, God's promises is going to come true. You hold on and you stand strong in that promise. That's what drives Jonathan's friendship with David. Jonathan's faith in God and their friendship is built around the foundation of God. Pastor Tim Keller talks about this concept this way. This idea that friendship requires some kind of foundation. He says, friends come from what you are in love with. They happen to be the people who are most in love with the same things that you are in love with. And as a result, that is one of the reasons why a lot of people have very few friends. He goes on to say that if you want nothing but approval, if you want nothing but friends, you will never have any friends. Because friendship is always about something besides friends. Wish I learned this lesson when we were children on the playground. Because you go up to another kid, you don't go, hey, do you want to be friends? You, ask, you go, hey, do you want to play tag? Do you want to play ball? Tetherball? Best friends are built around tetherball. <laughs> it's always about something else. It's about being with people, standing side by side, looking at the same thing, doing the same thing. This is why it's generally easier to form friendship around hobbies or interests or affinities. You like football? I do too. You cheer for that team? Me too. But affinity can certainly bring people together, but it's usually not deep enough to anchor a friendship for the long haul because affinity changes hobbies, changes life stage shifts. And when friendship is based off of those things, they tend to come and go. But when it comes to David and Jonathan, they actually have a foundation that allows them to connect past the surface and circumstance. Jonathan is royalty. David is a shepherd. Jonathan will actually be a good bit older than David based on the timeline of Saul's reign. Some scholars say Jonathan is at least 20 years older than David. Jonathan is heir to the throne. David is his replacement. So in any respect, they should have actually been enemies. If you expect anything of their friendship, there will be enemies and not friends. But God unites them. And that's the secret sauce to Christian friendship. That there's no one who is off limits. No one where friendship cannot possibly be formed. Because it's not actually about affinity or life stage or hobbies. It's not about Myers-Briggs or any Enneagram numbers or any personality test. When you align yourself with God's purposes in the world, it allows you to align with God's purposes in others. And now anyone can be a friend. Number two, friendship is built through commitment. Friendship is built through commitment. 
So we talk about how David and Jonathan have this covenant with one another, how they actually continue to express the commitment to, to, with each other. And here's the reality, most people, here's the reality, most people that you know and that you want to know, you know them because they're useful to you. And most of the people who know you know you because you are useful to them. Some other people are useful to you for having a good time. They're useful for making you feel better about yourself. They're useful for meeting other people. They're useful for getting things done. But friendships cannot thrive when it only serves a utilitarian purpose, when it's only useful to you. Because when life gets hard, when things begin to cave in, people who only know you because they're useful will no longer be around you because you are no longer useful to them. A friend, however, is there. Because a friend has not made you a means to an end, you are an end in yourself. A friend is someone who can count, you can count on, who you know you can rely on, even when your life falls apart. That's a friend. Many of us gone through something like this in our lives when everything fell apart we, and the people we thought we would look up to and stand, find standing around us, walking with us through it, are nowhere to be found. Those were not real friendships. And many of you have experienced this. And on the flip side, some of you are too unreliable, too inconsistent to be a true friend to others because we never know what we're going to get from you. One season you're there, you're in it with us, we're encouraging each other, we're sharing life together. The next season you're just gone. You don't communicate anymore, you're not around. We don't know what's going on, you're a total mystery. You're unreliable, you're inconsistent. Some of you just rotate friend groups and every season you got a different group of friends that you rotate through. Friendships are built through commitment. Let's keep moving. Friendships require unity. Friendships require unity. This is something that jumped out to me. And when I say unity, I mean friends actually know each other. They communicate what they're thinking, what they're feeling to one another. They're not mysteries. They share life experiences together, the highs and the lows. There's unity there. There's a we know each other and we're going to get through this together. Unity just jumps off the page to me. When we read it earlier in chapter 20, David just received a secret message from Jonathan that Saul is still after him. David walks up to Jonathan and bows. And remember, he bows three times. And it says, they kiss one another and wept with one another. This actually happens elsewhere in scripture, like in Acts chapter 20. Paul is meeting with the elders of the Ephesian church. And Paul knows this is going to be the last time he's going to see him before he heads to Rome where he's going to be put in prison. And it says exactly the same thing, that when Paul met with these men, it says they hugged, they kissed, they cried. There's this sort of pattern in the Bible, in the Bible of people who really care about one another, that they hug, they kiss, and they weep together. And I can't think, I can't help to think that as much as our culture values authenticity and transparency, that this level of rawness makes all of us uncomfortable. This level of honesty and rawness that we all tend to avoid even though we value being authentic. 
this idea of bearing your soul before somebody else, unfiltered. To, to let them see you in a moment of hurt, of sorrow, of anger and pain. We may value authenticity, but we are actually terrified of this type of authenticity when we can be this open in front of other people, to weep, to hug one another. And that's what David and Jonathan does here and Paul does with the Ephesian church leaders. Their expression of love for one another is honestly, we're just incredibly uncomfortable with, which honestly I think speaks a lot about our culture because we think this level of honesty and openness can only happen in romantic relationships. In fact, a lot of people who read David and Jonathan's friendship, they tend to assume there's got to be a romantic component here or else this cannot happen. But the point to be drawn is that a friend is someone who you let your guard down with, you don't dress up, not for a real friend. A friend is someone who you can think out loud with. Someone who go through the ups and downs of life, who you, who you can count on to be there. That when the highs, it's even higher because they're there. When the lows, they're not quite as bad because they're there. Someone who is continuous pointing you to Jesus and to truth, and they will let you know the truth even when the truth could be difficult to hear because they don't feel the need to dress up for you in the same way that you don't need to dress up for them, that they can be honest with you. That's a deep friendship. And I'll add this as a tag for those of you who are married. Just because you're married does not mean you're friends with your spouse. There are tons of people who are married and they're actually not friends with their spouse. I think this is one of the biggest undiagnosed problems with marriages in America, you think all the different marriage books and how they're all about getting romance back in the relationship, how to spice up your sex life, that's what's going to fix your marriage. And you know, romance is good. Spicy sex sounds awesome. <laughs> I don't really know what it means, but it can't, I mean, I'm assuming it's a good thing. But but part of what's missing in people's marriages is that you're not friends with your spouse. You're mysteries to each other. You're actually not going through life together. You're just parallel in the same house. You're not going through the ups and downs in the same way. You're not known by one another. You're not unified together. Let's keep going. Friendships are reciprocal. Number four, friendships are reciprocal. You can look at this later, but in chapters 20, verse 14 through 15, Jonathan actually asks David to protect his house when David becomes king. He asks David to protect his future kids and his house. Jonathan asks David, would you please protect my house? Here's why this is such a huge deal. Because in ancient civilizations, when there's a regime change, the first thing the new regime is, they will kill everybody from the house of the old regime. You have to protect your place, and anyone descended from the old regime's family is a potential threat to rise up and lay claim to the throne. And David does, in fact, protect Jonathan's family. And in doing so, he opens up himself to all kinds of danger and future consequences in this friendship. So it's not just Jonathan who is sacrificing for David. There's, there's, there, there's, um, they're reciprocal. There's a give and take between Jonathan and David. And I bring this up because some of you have a relationship where you're always giving. You're always pouring in. There are people like this in your life where if y'all are hanging out, it's because you ask if they want to hang out. 
If someone's being encouraged, it's because you are encouraging them. If someone gets service, it's because you are serving them. Those are called ministries. And ministries is a good thing. One-way relationship where someone pouring into another person is a ministry, and you need to do ministry. And the Bible says there's blessing for those of us who are pouring out in ministry. But that's a different kind of blessing than the blessing that comes through friendship, where there's a give and there's a take. You need both of them in your life. You need ministry, where you're mostly the one pouring out, and you need friendship, where there's a give and take, there's a back and forth. Some of you only know how to give and you don't know how to receive from someone else. Let them be a friend to you. Others of you only know how to take and you do not know how to actually begin to pour back into someone else. For there to be friendship, there need to be reciprocity. And here's the last thing, number five. We need an internal friend. We need an internal friend. Jonathan, eventually, at the end of the story here, he leaves David, he goes home. And this is the last time, we, that this is the last time they, they see each other because the next time we hear from Jonathan, he actually dies alongside his father in battle. Jonathan is not the ultimate presence that David needs. He gets David through that one season. He's a beautiful gift in David's life for that season. But for all the promises that Jonathan makes to David, he cannot promise that David he will be there with him forever. And that's what you need. That's what all of us need. We need a friend who will be with us forever. And there's this place in John 15. Jesus is headed to the cross, and he turns to his disciples in verse 15. He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my, my father, I have made known to you. Jesus invites them to consider him as their friend. And Jesus is a friend to you even when it cost him. In fact, it cost Jesus' life to be your friend. Jesus, like Jonathan, endured the wrath of his father that was reserved for you. Jesus set aside his kingdom privileges, his divine right as the eternal son of God. He set all, the, all of that aside to come to earth, to humble himself to death, on the cross, Jesus gave up his kingdom so you can receive his inheritance. He's the kind of friend that you truly need, someone who gets you, someone who really knows who you are. He knows what you're thinking and feeling better than you even know for yourself. Someone who is always for you, not just sometimes and not others. He's always there. You need a friend who can who you can weep with and celebrate with. You need someone who experiences your ups and lows as if it were their own. You need a friend that's infinite. You need a friend that you can go to about anything at any time, who is always available. We need a friend that's willing to overcome all difficulties that's associated with being in relationship with us and never stop pursuing us despite of our sin. You need an eternal friend who will never leave you, never forsake you, never let you down. And Jesus is the eternal friend that we need. Because if he did not abandon you on the cross, if he did not abandon you in the immense pain and suffering that he endured on the cross, he's not going to leave you now. 
So I want to pray for us. And I want to give you one last encouragement before we um, kind of transition to the next time where we sing and take communion. Before we do that, if there's a relationship in the room that is in need of repair, I, I want you to go grab that person and talk to them. Be reconciled. If you need to go outside and apologize, ask for an apology. Deal with this so you are reconciled and, and then you can then come back in the room and take communion, back in right relationship with each other. Because that's what communion ultimately is pointing us to. It's, it's the body and blood of Christ. And when you take that bread, it's, it represents the broken body, and you dip it in the juice, which is the blood of Christ. It's actually a, a, a practice for us to remember that each of us have been purchased by Jesus, that we are now brothers and sisters. That's why we do that every week. Our family relationships in Christ are too valuable for us to allow things to remain between us. So let's deal with it. Let's deal with any relational issue that we have in this room. And let's reflect and remember that Jesus is our friend. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. He's our God. And he's our King. And yes, absolutely, he is our friend. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that, yeah, thank you for who you are. That your way of pursuing us is not just standing from afar, looking from heaven, and then just wave a magic wand and make everything okay again. Your way of pursuing us is actually coming to us, living among us, walking along with us and ultimately serving us and by dying on the cross. And that's a beautiful picture of how you love us, how you're there with us, and that you call us your friend. And then you, you, you ask us to consider you a friend. Father, thank you that you've given us people around us that we don't have to be alone, that you have called us to be in relationships one, with one another, and even provide the means to which we can remain in relationship with one another when sin comes between us, that there's a solution now because your son has paid and made, paid for everything on the cross and paved a way for reconciliation and restoration. So Holy Spirit, we just ask for you to move among us if there's any sin between us and someone else, would you bring it up to our minds now? Would you give us the strength and the courage and humility to go grab that person and have that conversation so we can be reconciled? And Father, I thank you that we can do this as a family, that we can come and celebrate who you are and, and, Jesus, and celebrate what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross by taking communion together. You're really, really good, God, and we don't deserve you, but yet we have you. And for that, we praise you forever. You're good. We ask your spirit to move right now. And we pray all this name, all of this in your name. Amen.